opened the door to the most powerful room in housing, built for mortgage executives, real estate leaders, and the rising stars that drive innovation and progress. The gathering will feature over 45 powerful speakers on stage in Scottsdale, Arizona from April 21st to 24th. Learn more and register now at housingwirethegathering.com. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is managing editor James Kleiman to talk about loan officer compensation and how some companies seem to be breaking the LO comp rule. We'll also talk about the new conforming loan limits. James, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, it's been a while. Thanks. It has been. It was before Thanksgiving, and that seems already like a month ago, even though it was like last week. Yep. So let's jump in. Um, you and Flavia Furlan Nunez, who is our senior um, reporter at Housing Wire, have been digging into a story that I think would be very interesting for our audience. Obviously, um, you guys have been working on it for a couple of weeks. It's not quite ready yet, but I would love to um, kind of give us a preview of it because it's about LO Comp, which I think is a very interesting topic to much of our audience. Yeah, I think this is a really important subject to discuss. And hopefully there are some LOs, other folks in the industry who are interested in weighing in, and we're not at all done with this story yet. So if they'd like to discuss it with me, please shoot me an email, text me, call, whatever. Uh, but but here's here's the story. So we've been hearing for a couple months now that there are loan officers and certain independent mortgage banks out there who are playing games with LO comp. Just by way of background, I think it's important that people know the origins here. So let's zoom way back to when I was just about to graduate high school, 2004, 2005, kind of the wild west of mortgage days. And of course, we know that a lot of what happened during those days ultimately contributed to the housing crash in 08, 09. And back then, there were a lot of loan officers out there, particularly brokers, uh, who were playing games with LO Comp, and they would go from buyer to buyer, borrower to borrower, and they would change their rates. And in the wake of Dodd-Frank, the CFPB, newly established, decided we want to create a standard model for how loan officers get paid. We want to remove any mislaid incentives. So if you're an LO, you are going to be claiming essentially the same comp plan for all borrowers of certain types, right? You know, and so different products, things change a little bit here and there, depending on the rules of the various agencies that, that are uh, enforcing uh, such, such loan products. But for the most part, if you are supposed to be getting 125 basis points on a loan, you're going to get 125 basis points for a $400,000 loan, whatever, right? What we've been hearing for a while is that with rates being so high, obviously a lot of loan officers and companies are desperate for volume and they're desperate for units, right? So one of the important components of the LO comp rule is that although you're supposed to have more or less a uniform comp plan, that plan can change depending on the lead type. So if the lead source, for example, is an MSA, you can be paid less than your standard, let's just make up a number, 125 basis points. Let's say it's 100 basis points. It would 
probably be much lower. Let's say the company has a company generated lead from Nerd Wallet or something from their internal CRM. As a loan officer, you could claim much less in comp for that lead. So there are these different buckets, right? Now, the self gen loan bucket is always going to be the highest. So that'll be, let's say, 125 basis points is maybe a little high in some cases, but let's say it's usually north of 100, right? And then a lot of the other buckets are going to be much lower. Now, here's where we get into some of the interesting kind of the meat of this issue. The issue is everyone is trying to get those rates lower. If you're quoting borrowers at seven and a half, you know, 8%, as an LO, you're looking for an edge on pricing. As a lender, in some cases, you're looking for an edge on pricing. And so one thing that the LO comp rules do, and we've spoken to a number of attorneys about this, they're very clear that if you claim in the process that this is a self-gen lead, and then before it locks, you change the lead source to you know, a nerd wallet provided company lead, and thus you're cutting your compensation from 125 basis points to 60 basis points, you are breaking LO comp rules. That is what a number of attorneys have told us, what a number of independent mortgage bank executives have told us. And this is a practice that people have described to us as rampant. And I think a lot of folks in the industry would say, well, hold on, how on earth would the consumer be harmed by this? I'm getting them the lowest rate possible because I'm cutting my compensation, right? The lender, unless there are maybe some pricing exceptions, uh, which does happen, of course, um, but for the most part, it's the LO who is deciding to take the hit here. So how could it possibly be that this is, a bad practice that should be policed in the industry? Um, And and the answer is really quite simple. It goes back to this idea about incentives. So what we have heard from people who think there should be more enforcement of this rule, the yellow cop rule of this practice that has proliferated and and has been around since, you know, really the the Dodd-Frank rules, but has been particularly abused in the words of some of the people we've spoken with over the last year and a half when rates really started to jump up is one, it's a fair housing issue, right? Are there less savvy borrowers who are getting quoted higher rates because the LO doesn't feel like they have to negotiate because they don't think they're going to get price shocks or they don't think that this borrower knows enough about how a mortgage works, about how, um, you know, how any of the the money is allocated and when and, and and all that, that there are more likely going to be members of protected classes who are getting quoted higher rates. And so maybe on an individual basis, there are plenty of consumers out there who are getting quoted much better rates. There are likely to be quite a few consumers who don't know to negotiate, right? How many, uh, Buyers out there are first-time home buyers who don't have the experience of having applied for a mortgage and received a mortgage, having done it, and also by virtue of you know working this kind of role, I would know how to price shop. I would know what questions to ask. But you ask someone who's been a renter for 
20 years and is finally accumulated enough in savings and they go to somebody they believe is reputable and they have an initial conversation and the LO asks them, hey, you know, how far along are you in the process? Let's talk about your financial profile. Have you talked to any other loan officers? Have you gotten any other quotes? And they very quickly surmise that this prospective borrower is a bit of a rube. Um, they're much less likely to lower their price, take the lower comp, put it in incorrectly, I might add, in the wrong bucket and get them the better rate. And so this is really the genesis of a lot of the problems that we're reporting on right now related to Elocom. My initial response was exactly what you said, which is, how could this be a bad thing for them? And you know, why why is that bad? But to your point, and and really what the regulators and the agencies are trying to do in DC is standardize everything because that wh- where you get into trouble is where you don't have those standardization, right? And where um, there's individual uh opportunity, we know that some people will take it, you know, and and do bad things with it. But from my perspective, as a, not only might this be very hard to report on, how exactly, um, what does the trail look like if you're the lender? And and is it easy to find that this person put it in the wrong bucket because we know it came from here? I mean, how does all that work? So the lender is supposed to be tracking where the leads come from. They are Theoretically, they could get an audit from the CFPB and they would have to show that this lead came from here. There are quite a few software systems out there that allow these companies to track where the leads are. The challenge is twofold. First is, do they have um, a good process that prevents the loan officer themselves from changing where the lead source is generated throughout the process, right? So that's kind of a question about, I don't know if I'd say security per se, but but really um, chain of custody, I guess. I don't know. Um, you know, re- really sort of the rules that outline who's allowed to do what. Um, the second part is, I think there are a lot of lenders who either look the other way and don't want to know because, Lenders, as much as anyone in the industry right now, are desperate for volume, and it's probably a case of don't ask, don't tell. Or in the case of some retail, distributed retail lenders out there, it's baked into the policy. It's baked into the business model, how they do business. They want um, LOs to be claiming from different buckets. They're encouraging LOs to take lower comp and... You know, it's it's sort of their way of maintaining the integrity of the operation in the sense that they're still receiving the proceeds from, you know, originating a loan. Um, but it's not them that's taking a massive pricing exception, let's say. Um, now, in some cases, there are pricing exceptions paired with, uh, you know, what I would deem to be improper lead source, um, you know, usage from the LO. So it could be one from either side, right? Um, But more often what we've heard is that it's LOs who are cutting their own comp. And in a lot of cases, they're taking 50 basis points per loan just to get it it done Uh, because 50 is better than zero if you lose that loan to a competitor. And it's still a very competitive environment. LOs are still 
you know, they're, they're certainly not doing as well as they were a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. Um, but there are still quite a few LOs that are generating enough volume where they can keep it going until what is the mantra survive till 25. So you know, there's robust competition. And I think that a lot of the lenders are saying, look, it's you who's going to take it on the chin if you want to get this loan done. And if you want to classify it as this kind of lead, okay, that's fine. How many firms are actively tracking? We don't know. There's no, it's not the sort of thing that you see in the Humda data. The CFPB would not answer our questions. The MBA has acknowledged that this is a problem. They have offered guidance via an attorney's letter earlier in the year where they did say, hey, you know, we, we know that this is a practice that has been happening. We have spoken to the attorneys uh, and, and they have determined this is improper, that you should not be doing this. Uh, but based on more than a dozen interviews with top attorneys, people who helped write the LO comp rule, top executives out there, we feel pretty comfortable in reporting that this is as widespread a practice as ever um, and probably has accelerated since the letter was issued by the MBA. Do you foresee, um, you know, the CFPB or other other regulators taking action on this specific thing? I, I mean, if I had an answer to that question, I'd be making a lot more money than I do, Sarah. You know, the, the CFPB <laughs> is such a, it's tough because in a lot of ways, it's sort of a black box. You don't hear about what they're doing. We haven't seen a heck of a lot of mortgage enforcement in a lot of ways. We saw a couple, you know, there, there was the one in which, I believe it was Freedom Mortgage had been maybe playing fast and loose with some of the MSA rules, right? We saw that come down a couple months ago, but we haven't seen much in the way of RESPA or LO comp cases in years. I honestly, I can't even think of one. So if the CFPB is aware of it, if they are looking into it, that has not been... Um, it, it's certainly not something that the industry is aware of from the people that we've spoken to. It is entirely possible that they have been auditing some companies and they do have a handle on this. And at some point in the future, they're going to have a, a significant enforcement action that does properly put people on notice that, hey, we went after this LO or we went after this lender and we find them X amount of millions of dollars. And that would certainly chill the practice. But one of the criticisms we often hear is that the CFPB, I, I don't know if this is accurate or not, but one of the criticisms we hear from the industry is the CFPB often doesn't understand the industry well enough to really police some of the practices that some say are insidious and, and are, are harming other lenders and are harming the integrity of the entire profession. Others say the CFPB just isn't resourced enough. You know, they, they can audit what X percent, I, I think they're supposed to audit like 20% of companies per year. So what, four out of five do this and nothing happens. And then an investigation in most cases, it doesn't wrap up in a week, right? Uh, they, they take a long time to, to be completed. And so if the CFPB is working on it, you know, 
we probably wouldn't see anything for a while anyway. And in the meantime, if the question is, I know this is improper, I know that this is not a practice that I should be doing, but my other option is I, what, go out of business? Again, we talk about the incentives and I think most practitioners are going to be incentivized to continue the practice because you'd rather deal with a potential CFPB fine a year from now, two years from now, six, whatever it is, right? But you want to, the goal is to survive, right? It's not, it's not to write a, an ethics manual. Right. Survive to 25. Uh, that might be how some people, you know, are, are seeing it. Well, um, I would encourage our listeners if they have an opinion to share, if they have some insights, if they want to be a source, um, contact you, James at hwmedia.com. Um, and that's about anything. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stories we know out there. There's a lot of stories you guys are working on, but on this particular one, we'd love to hear from people who can enlighten us about uh, different aspects of it. So let's uh, switch topics a little bit and talk about another issue very interesting to lenders and everyone in the space, and that is the 2024 conforming loan limits. Now, we are talking on Tuesday. Um, We expect this to be announced um, this week, so it could be even announced uh, on the day this podcast comes out. But tell us what we think we're going to see with those loan limits. So it is a formula. It is based on the FHFA's home price index. And based on where we were last year and the increase in prices, let's say that, so house prices rose five and a half percent over the the last quarter. So I think we're probably going to see conforming loan limits in 2024 of around $766,767,000, which would be obviously a record, right? It's a record every year. and the same criticisms come in every year, right? Which is, you know, that that's just the baseline, right? The 766, what, whatever the number ends up being. Um, but if it is just the baseline, we know that there are certain counties with high cost of living um, designations. And those limits then would be in the 1.1 million plus range, which is, and again, these are just the loans. We're not talking about the down payments, right? So that's pretty striking. I, I think it speaks more than anything to where we are with affordability being at such a, a difficult place right now. And I think a lot of the affordable housing organizations and the advocates are going to be right back there up on their soapboxes again this year saying, wait a second, why is the federal government subsidizing mortgages for the 1%? Why are we subsidizing mortgages that are mortgages themselves, not the house price, over a million dollars. Couldn't we be allocating this money better? Couldn't we be doing more to spur, say, construction or, you know, let's let's use that money to uh, tackle zoning issues or to spur, I don't know, changes with uh, affordable lending, right, in, in other communities. But again, and this is only the FHFA, right? This is Fannie and Freddie. Um, and we know that Fannie and Freddie are going to be the um, institution of choice for, I think, better placed prospective home buyers. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely just a continuation of the same. And and the reason that this structure is 
what it is is because it's it's a formula and it's a congressional rule. It's not like the FHFA woke up yesterday morning and said, you know what, I'm really into the seven sixty six thousand dollar number. What about you? Yeah, that sounds great. Let's do it. Okay. Um, and and I know that the FHFA has has really been very focused on enacting more affordable housing targets and holding Fannie and Freddie to account and making sure that they are, you know, they, they've changed a lot of other, other rules related to um, some of these guidelines, right? So you look at the selling guide and, and they did change the DTI requirement that had been floated, but certainly there are a lot of measures in place to try to incentivize Fannie and Freddie for doing, you know, buying a lot more uh, loans for the middle class and, and the lower middle class. But it's just, it's not enough because we don't have nearly enough supply. There's not how many homes are truly affordable in, in my market. You know, you look around, if I wanted to buy a, a one bedroom apartment in Manhattan, I'd be looking at 1.2 million, right? So, and that's considered affordable around here. When you said, you know, some expensive areas, I was like, exactly where you're sitting right now, James, is is one of those. I agree with you that it, you know, we can argue about, you know, should they be doing it? But like, if they don't do it, I mean, you're talking about locking up liquidity in in a way that would be completely unhelpful to anyone in housing or anybody trying to buy a house. Yeah. I mean, like maybe, maybe the whole, (laughs) the whole practice needs a rethink. Maybe there should be tiers. Maybe there should be different pricing structures, you know, in in different areas. I, I know that the, would make things very complicated for a lot of lenders and especially the underwriting departments here. I'd imagine trying to do that. Um, but clearly the system that is in place right now is not aiding in affordability. You're helping the rich get richer in effect. Helping the rich get richer. So there's two other um, lending or lender type uh, housing things I wanted to talk about. And one is, you know, we're hearing about data breaches and cybersecurity attacks, some that are on the record and a lot that are not on the record that uh, we, you know, we get tips all the time from people who uh, might know uh, about what's going on. Of course, um, you know, there are some things that the, if they're a lender or servicer, they have to, they have to report, but there are other things, you know, if it's a ransomware attack that we might not even know about. Yeah. So we saw the big one with Mr. Cooper, right? Um, That has been resolved. I don't know exactly what transpired. I don't know if it was, you know, a bunch of dudes in in North Korea who uh part of the North Korean government who decided to to target them or, you know, what what exactly happened there. Um, but we do know that it, it really knocked a lot of their systems out for a number of days. And there were closings that had to be delayed. There were all kinds of problems. These problems always affect the end user, of course. And and this is to say nothing of what happens when you're you're Data is out there in the open for everyone. I kind of operate personally on the assumption that my credit card pins, my social security, my my all of my personal identification is already out there and has been traded times over, um, which is a little scary. Obviously, I've had identity theft issues. I remember when I had no money whatsoever, I was making like $29,000 a year somebody somehow used my identity to buy a speedboat in Vermont for like $85,000. And I'm like, I only make like 30. How, how did the, how did they do this? Like, 
do I, do I make more money than I think? No, 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 I don't. I didn't buy, I don't need, I have no idea how that happened, but you know, this has obviously become a, a big cat and mouse game between the industry, the federal authorities, the secret service has a lot of this under its purview, uh, the FBI, of course, but it's so hard to police. There's, it's an increasingly digital world and it's really, how do you enforce this on people in an internet cafe in Lagos, Nigeria? How do you enforce the, these sorts of rules and laws in North Korea? You know, you, you really can't. And in a lot of cases, these firms are just going to make the calculation that it's less disruptive to business to pay a $15 million ransom. So Mr. Cooper said it's going to cost them about $10 million or less in bulking up their digital security infrastructure and that this event won't have a material impact on on their company's operations and all of the systems as of now appear to be running and and back up. But we also know that one um, one of the title insurance companies, Fidelity, had a big breach as well. And they disclosed that with the SEC as, as a publicly traded company. And they have a couple uh, subsidiaries under them, ServiceLink being one of them, um, that, that were also caught up in all this. And so it, it just keeps happening. It's going to happen. I would be surprised if there were, you know, a top 25 servicer or lender or title or appraiser or whatever that isn't hit by this in the next five years, I mean, that, that would be worth a, a Q and a, you know, talk to their head of network security. Um, if, if there was a company that manages to not, um, you know, be taken advantage of by, by one of these pirates or bad actors out there. It's true. You know, I'm doing those, um, tech interviews, interviews with tech executives at different companies, whether they're lenders or brokerages or tech companies themselves. And I'm asked, you know, I asked them what keeps you up at night and, there are some other things, but this is the most consistent answer. And you understand why they're in charge of, you know, this is their responsibility. And there's, like you said, it's a cat and mouse game where it's almost impossible that that's not going to happen to everyone at some point. And when it does, you know, all, all the law enforcement is, is pretty much useless. I mean, there's not a lot that they can do once it's happened. So, you know, you're kind of in this really terrible spot. And it's interesting to me that, you know, Mr. Cooper, you know, $10 $10 million is, is no small change. I know they're a giant company. They do a lot of things, but um, it's really unfortunate. Yeah. Well, for Mr. Cooper, it's not, not to diminish the, the significance of the issue, but it is a little bit more than, it's a little bit more than a rounding error, but it is not, you know, it's not a huge operational uh, blow either. So, you know, hopefully the industry is, is able to, figure out a a way to, to get a little bit better about encrypting some of the data and, you know, utilizing best practices that we see. And and it's not like this is only something that happens in in the mortgage and and housing industries. We see this in all corners of finance, medical as well. There's always consumer. There's like, what was it? Target years ago had a huge breach and gave everybody's information. So it's, yeah, I almost wonder like how valuable could any of it be at this point because I just feel like it's already out there on the on the dark web. If someone was really motivated, they could probably find it. 
I'm with you on that. I've assumed that that's all out there already, although that doesn't give me any peace of mind. But um, it also does keep me from every time they're like, I get a notice in the mail, you know, they always send you a notice you your information was part of this breach where you're like, yeah, right. Okay, well, just another one to the mix right there, right? Well, James, thank you so much for being on today. I so appreciate it and look forward to the stories when when you publish them, especially the one about LO Comp, which uh, might be in the next week or so. Um, and hope we get some insights from our listeners on this who might be able to shed some more information, but always a great time talking to you. Cool. Thanks very much, Sarah. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.